Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Ewan Larson and in this episode we talk to Professor Alastair Hay from the Centre for Academic Primary Care, NIHR School for Primary Care Research and that's at Bristol Medical School, of course at the University of Bristol in the UK. So Alastair is an academic GP with a long interest in the management of acute infections and the use of antibiotics in primary care and he leads a group down in Bristol. We have just published an editorial in the BJGP by him and his colleagues. In this episode, he talks about attitudes and understandings of COVID testing. And we also get a chance to talk about uh, multiviral testing and the use of CRP and how that fits into clinical care, particularly point of care testing. Uh, And towards the end, he tells us the research he would like to do in the future to help move this vital area of clinical practice forward. So first, we talked a little bit about the public's attitude to testing and how it might change with COVID, uh, particularly with the emergence of tests for respiratory tract infections. And I asked Alastair for his initial thoughts and how he thinks this could affect the public's understanding of these tests. I think that my perception is that the public regard the result of a COVID test as true. Um, They regard it as accurate. Um, And I don't really get the sense that um, people understand the concept of false negatives and false positives. So it's like it's like the public and and our patients, I think, will assume that if they have a test, then the test is right. (laughs) And and I think the danger there is that they will um, assume that the doctor is is not right. (laughs) The test has shown X, so how on earth can the doctor possibly know anything more than the test? Um, And given that we've got COVID testing available to us um, so readily at the moment, I just can't imagine that the public is going to cope with us in our clinic saying to them, your respiratory infection is viral, (laughs) which is what we've been doing for the last 150 years or something since these microbes were first identified Um, and they're going to start saying to us they're going to challenge us I think they're going to say well which which virus is it and and they're going to start to understand the difference between a virus and a bacteria many people do already and they're going to say well how do you know it's not bacterial and how do you know I don't need an antibiotic so I I I kind of foresee that we're going to perhaps be backed into a corner a little bit more than we've been used to and of course, it's very attractive to have these tests. Um, I think people will be willing to pay for them, those that have the resources. Um, and the companies that make them, of course, are going to be more than happy to sell them. So we're going to have a sort of self-perpetuating cycle, if you like, which will be going on maybe in the background. Patients calling us saying, I've done the test, you know, it's shown that I'm positive for x y or z what are you going to do about it now please yeah. um, and i think i think we just need to kind of anticipate that and and think very carefully about what evidence do we really need before we get into that situation before we lose equipoise what what evidence do we really want to have at our fingertips as doctors and nurses in our clinics to be able to answer those sorts of questions yeah so I'll maybe come back to what evidence you think we'll need in a minute. But this is obviously an incredibly important topic, not just because of COVID, but because of the 
importance of the careful use and stewardship of antibiotics for the future. And that's been that you know that's the the classic dilemma for your GP is spotting the viral infection versus the bacterial one. And we all know that clinically it's limited, isn't it? And we we, we get value from we we potentially could get value from point of care testing. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about you had a study um, that's just about to be published, an exploratory investigation into multiviral point of care testing using upper respiratory swabs and what that found. So this was a, um, a sort of first um, dip of the toe into the water um, in terms of using a multiviral test. So the, the Oxford group has just published something that was very um, similar, a parallel study, if you like, in the BJGP recently. Um, which was looking at um, just influenza and, mm, gosh, I should remember, I think it might have been RSV. Um, so it was, a, it was a two viral test. The one that we used last winter in, in a handful of Bristol practices tests for, um, forgive me, I'll forget precisely the details, but it's about 15 viruses and three atypical bacteria. And because um, we know we want to do a randomized controlled trial of this technology, but we didn't know whether it was even acceptable to clinicians, we thought the starting point was, uh, was just to give the kit to clinicians and say, you know, do with it what you see fit. <laughs> um, uh, test it in the patients that you feel it's relevant. Um, and they did, um, and in fact, they used it a lot. Um, they liked it. Um, they liked the fact that it um, would back up their kind of viral diagnosis. Um, and, um, but, but the things they didn't like were, unsurprisingly, it still doesn't give us information about the typical bacteria. So the streps, the Haemophilus and the Moraxella, um, which are the three main respiratory bacterial pathogens as we know and and um, the test doesn't look for those it doesn't test for those because they are so commonly found as commensal carried microbes so and you know if you find them you don't really know what they mean so so that was the big limitation and then the other things that sort of they were concerned about the result for that particular piece of kit took 60 minutes so there is a bit of disruption to the flow of care. Um, it's not insurmountable, but it's not quite, you know, the ideal, of course, everyone wants is five to 10 minutes. Um, but we felt there was sufficient evidence there for us to seek funding to do a randomized trial. And we're currently, we've just been um, shortlisted to submit a stage two application. So a two-step process. So we're kind of halfway to, um, to persuading the NHS to fund a trial. So we'll see how we get on with that. Yeah. In recent years, I've seen a lot of papers with the BJGP and in and around about point of care testing, and in particularly um, the use of CRP. Is uh, and we, we seem to get a lot. Of, we we get and obviously you're heavily involved yourself, but we get a lot of papers from Europe as well on this. Um, and we know that, um, as you mentioned in your editorial, Nice recommend the use of CRP, particularly for the diagnosis diagnosis of um, community acquired pneumonia in primary care. I wondered if you, you, you go through this a little bit in the editorial. First thing I wanted to ask is you, you make a note in the editorial that the uptake, uptake in primary care is very low. And I can think of some practical reasons for that, but I wondered if you had some th 
thoughts on uh, one thing I've, I would like to ask as well is that who, who has point of care testing in UK and Europe just now? Because although it seems like it seems like a pipe dream in many ways for many GPs, certainly in the UK. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the question around why we don't use it, I, I don't have a complete answer for you. I can speculate a little bit. I, I, I hear murmurings every now and then, which sort of slightly fuel my speculations, but my answer is not, you know, I'm not trying to say I've got the answer, but as I understand it, um, the concern is around who pays for it. And, um, and I don't think that anyone's quite reached agreement on that. And I find that interesting in its own right, because if something is overwhelmingly evidence based and effective, then usually we find a way to fund it, don't we? And, and so for me, that sort of speaks about some level of hesitancy around CRP. I think I, I don't get the sense that people are 100% convinced about it. And, and if I'm honest, I share those concerns. Um, and I'll come back to why that is in, in a minute. I'm not saying it, it can't ever be useful, um, but I think we need to be really clear about why it works and how it works. Um, in terms of our, yeah, we, I don't, I'm not, I'm hardly aware of any parts of the UK where it's used. I think practices, obviously one or two, or maybe quite a few, can go ahead and buy a machine themselves. We've talked about it in my practice. I'd be quite interested, to be honest, to have one, um, just to sort of get, get a feel for where I think it fits into clinical care. Um, and, but in terms of our, our European neighbours, they, they do use it much more frequently than we do. Um, we can't, of course, tar, use the same brush to tar the whole of Europe, but for example, Norway, um, GPs there are reimbursed for every CRP test that they use. And when I talk to some of my colleagues in, in Norway, I, I start to get a bit of a sense of how they use it. I think they're quite discriminatory in their use of CRP. I mean, for example, if a patient there presents with an infection, what they don't do is fall into the mistake, in my view, and the trap of getting somebody to do the CRP so that the result is ready for when you see the patient. In other words, you put the test in front of the history and in front of your uh, clinical assessment. Uh, and I, I don't, uh, that doesn't feel right to me. And they, they, they don't do that there. I think they um, use it as a tool um, to help them distinguish between serious or less serious problems, infections. And also intriguingly for me, um, they use it sometimes as a sort of bit of a follow-up tool. So to give them a sense of, is this patient's condition improving or worsening? Um, so I think that's quite an interesting way of using it where you've got, a, you've got a baseline for that patient and then you can see what happens over the next few days. Um, I hear different things across Europe. I hear some countries where it's less discriminatory and they maybe do do that thing of, you know, the patient has the CRP and then the doctor will see you. Um, so quite wide variation, but generally speaking, yes, more use of CRP in, in Europe. Yeah, um, certainly, uh, yeah, I, I would agree. It feels a little bit uncomfortable to do the test before seeing the patient in the natural order of things. The, usually the history and examination you'd like to think has a stronger, um, should have a stronger pull on your decision rather than anything else. But yeah, so that's an interesting use to use it to monitor patients. 
Yeah, it is, isn't it? And I think the other thing, and this sort of comes back to what do I think we need to know? Well, I think we need to know if you're going to do any sort of test, CRP or a respiratory microbiological point of care test, we need to have really good evidence that the diagnostic information that that test gives us adds something to what we already have available to us, i.e. the patient symptoms and the examination findings. If they don't add to those, actually, why are we doing the test? And to my knowledge, that level of evidence is not um, yet available to us in primary care. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's always the test that I would... You know, I don't want us to sound too old-fashioned, but if you, you, you do investigations, but you don't do investigations if they don't change your management, um, is, is, is the kind of would be the bottom line. So I, as, a, as a final wrap-up, if you had a blank slate, Alistair, what, what RCT <laughs> would you do to, to kind of unpick this? Or, you know, what, what I'm sure you'd do more than one, of course, but what kind of, what areas would you really explore here? Yeah, so I, I think for me, the, there is a kind of two approach that we need. The first is something I've dreamed of doing for quite a while and if anyone's listening to this and they're thinking actually yes you know that is a good idea we really should get behind it I would be just delighted. I think what we need is a really quite detailed characterization of infections in general but let's just stick with respiratory infections for now in the community. And I think that what we need to do is characterize those illnesses, both in terms of their symptoms, but also in terms of the microbiology, um, in order to understand what is normal flora for people and how is that flora disrupted or changed in the event of you know, an infection occurring? Um, what does the profile of the change look like? One can imagine a little bit like the coronavirus that there is some sort of rise, a peak and then a fall. And that sort of information I think would help us in that situation where a patient was to phone us and say, I've done the test for streptococcus and it's positive. I think if we knew what the natural history of the streptococcus was in the sort of evolution of, a, of an illness, then we would be able to interpret that test with a little bit more certainty. So that's kind of one level of evidence. Um, some people might say, well, that's a little bit too theoretical and you know, let's just get on and do something a little bit more practical. To those people, I would say, well, we do need to do randomized controlled trials. Um, and we need, I think, to treat these tests like they are new medicines. We wouldn't dream of foisting um, a new medicine hydroxychloroquine for the sake of argument, or a new vaccine, a coronavirus vaccine, without understanding its safety profile, its effectiveness, and its cost effectiveness. We just wouldn't dream of doing it. But for some reason, we're quite comfortable with doing that for tests, that we can just introduce them without really understanding whether they're effective, cost effective, and safe. Um, if I could just diverge for a moment, in the current coronavirus, um, situation. One of my concerns is that at the time you take account of the false negatives, i.e. people who are actually infectious with coronavirus being falsely reassured that they're not and they are going about their business as usual, 
by the time you take account of the delays between the test and the result, and by the time you take account of the fact that some patients won't even behave as would be expected in the presence of a particular result, you may have completely undermined the whole strategy. And, and I think all of that sort of holds true for other tests as well. We need to understand not just the test, but we need to understand whether use of the test improves patient outcomes. First and foremost, does it help people? Because if it's not helping them, then arguably we shouldn't be doing it. Secondly, we do want to know if it helps us improve antibiotic prescribing. Now, I think there's a bit more of an argument in my mind that if, let's say, the test doesn't make any difference to the patient outcome, but it improves our use of antibiotics, is that worthwhile? And I think that's a discussion for everybody to be thinking about. So um, I think we would, as well as doing this population sort of type of study, I think we need randomized controlled trials of this sort of technology to understand if it improves patient outcomes, improves use of uh, antibiotics, improves patient care. Yeah, well, with, you know, huge swathes of the population getting tested, it's never been a more important time to think about it. And I think that's fascinating that kind of there is a bit of magical thinking that goes on around tests and what they mean. And that's incredibly valuable to have it um, described like that and the way that we should be thinking about it as well. Alastair, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Do share if you've enjoyed it. Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again. Thank you.